I hope you're ready for some serious slasher movie talk. Let's rejoin an episode already in progress in part two of this one. The March Mad Men are putting four more films to the test. Enjoy. Okay, on to the next one. It's in the Dark Horse category, which is the catch-all for films that don't fit into another category. They're strange, weird, different. They're not necessarily playing by the rules that other slasher films are. They're just breaking the mold in some meaningful way. But at the same time, they are, they're dark. So I think we have a couple of films that, that fit that category right now. And I'm going to crack a beer to get into the spirit of this. And it's an Elysian Night Owl Pumpkin Ale which is, uh, it's always Halloween, right? Isn't that a podcast title? I don't know, but it, it is for me. I'm cracking it. You guys got anything uh, going on there in the beverage front? I'm firmly in the middle of a stone, I believe it's a Cocoveza. Maybe it's mm-hmm. an Excaveza. I don't know. It's a Tres Leches edition. edition. As you can tell by my slight slur, it's a uh, sturdy <laughs> 8.5%. Wow. And I'm about halfway there. The, you, no, you think it's bad now. I'm about to introduce a uh, a <laughs> film mostly produced by French people. So we'll see how that goes. Uh-oh. I thought you were introducing Maniac, Rich. Yes, that was mostly produced by French people. Oh, okay. Thank God. I, for some reason, I thought opera might have been um, produced by, even though it's an Italian. Okay, yeah, never that mind. Was definitely, that was definitely the Italians. Okay. The important thing is that both movies are produced by dirty Europeans. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Well, ancient weird religious rites. Yeah. <laughs> Without further ado, let's talk about Maniac. Rich, take it away. Maniac. All right. Yeah, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, so apologies in advance um, to the fine people who made it. Um, all right. So Maniac is a 2012, a somewhere somewhere between a serial killer film and a and a slasher film. Um, it's directed by uh, Frank Calfoon, and it's notably written by our old buddy Alexandra Aha um, and Gregory Lavasseur, and starring Elijah Wood. This is a movie that is nearly an entirely point of view experience that follows the murder mayhem and the near-miss love story of mannequin enthusiast and brutal serial killer Frank Zito. I can't say that this has a exceptional uh, place in the, the pantheon of, of horror. Um, it did make a, a, a huge splash. This was, of course, a remake of Maniac, which I remarkably don't have the original date on in terms of when that, that came out, but it was an 80s a horror slasher film that I think may surface later on the competition. It's sort of like surface to, I would say like warm, but not, but not hot reviews, you know, sort of noted for its shocking and and bloody nature. And for the fact that it was slightly smarter than, than your average slasher, um, but also like mired by some excessive gore. You know, the producers who released this film were giving lots of reports about how they were screening this movie at at film festivals and people were were vomiting in the aisles and fainting. And that it was like eliciting these really visceral reactions from people who were nauseated by the idea of experiencing committing crimes in first person. And I'll admit 
that is a very strange element of this movie. And like, I, I really want to like underline that back. This movie plays like a weird mix of like a first person shooter video game and like pornography. Like the whole thing is just you looking at what are presumably Elijah Wood's hands and you're seeing his point of view and you are experiencing his life through his eyes for almost the entire film. There are only occasional instances where you actually get to see Elijah Wood as a character. Although my understanding is that during production, um, Elijah Wood was always behind the the camera and often speaking his dialogue with the with the other actors. In terms of how I personally felt about it, I, I had no expectations going into this movie. Um, except we had just talked about high tension, uh, and I saw Alexandra Aha's name on it. Um, so I was certainly curious. I started pretty cold on this movie. I thought it was a tough sell and felt more like something along the lines of like Henry Portrait of a serial killer. I feel like the first person point of view was just too much. I thought that Elijah Wood's acting was a, was a little hokey, like effects like the blurred lenses are kind of hokey. And the actresses are mostly terrible until you get to the the lead character of of Anna, who I think is a, a much stronger performance than the than the rest. But there's something about this movie that kind of got me as it went on. I think it's 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 commitment to its own perverse logic um, kind of ropes you in. Like you're either down for this movie or you're not. And as I'm part of this competition like i i had to sort of go all in on it and i i appreciated like the subtle touches of of that made the that the pain of like the, our protagonist i guess i guess that's what you'd call frank um uh, but he's essentially the protagonist of this film so he's going through a lot of like psychological duress he has this relationship with the mannequins in his studio he commits these murders and then you see him scrubbing his hands with steel wool um, it's unsettling and unnerving in a way that starts to bring to life this experience of like someone who, you know, presumably is is schizophrenic and a guy who has this unfailingly nice demeanor, despite the fact that it often leads to him trying to scalp people. There's no avoiding that this is a mean and morally depraved film, but I actually think they do a pretty good job of giving you a protagonist in Anna it's relatively thin, but like her aspirations of being an artist and the way in which she aligns herself with Frank sort of create this story that is that is like both sweet and sad, um, even though she gives Frank obviously like one too many chances um, and keeps him around. But you like in a way you start to feel for Frank until he does something that reminds you who he really is. Stylistically, this movie would have been a good double feature with something like Midnight Meat Train. It has that sort of like sexy nighttime L.A. feel. It reminded me a lot of Drive. Speaking of that style, I also want to point out that the music in this movie is a big player. Uh, the score that was done by a guy who is simply credited as Rob is very affecting. It's both unsettlingly atmospheric and also dreamlike in a way that gives this movie a perversely romantic quality at times. And I've seen it compared to the works of like Goblin or Carpenter, but honestly, I find it more cinematic and diverse, like the works of the Chromatics or, or Cliff Martinez. Um, I found myself listening to this score a lot uh, when I was writing uh, in the weeks after the movie, and I, I highly recommend checking it out. It brings a lot of atmosphere. So anyways, somehow this serial killer sympathy opera 
overcomes the trappings of its inherently dumbed-down first-person shooter approach and its violent co-signing to create something that's just a little bit sad and cinematic enough to linger with you, kind of like a stalker creeping in the car across the street. Wow, uh, a lot to chew on in that detailed reading, Rich. Thank you. Let's get right into the other film, though, because that's the way we do it, and then we'll double back. Let me tell you all about Opera. Released in 1987, Opera was directed by Dario Argento and stars Christina Marcelosh, Ian Charlison, who I believe has an award named after him, and Urbano Barberini. This is more of a giallo film than a slasher film with its black-gloved, unidentified killer and other classic giallo tropes, but it's modern enough to fit our category as we're probably not going to do a giallo season of the show. The score is pretty striking, um, maybe not as striking as Maniacs, but I guess opinions could vary on that. It's sometimes pretty bananas, the camera work in this. Argento's bravura filmmaking with sweeping crane shots from the perspective of crows let loose in a packed opera house. That's probably the most striking visual, but there's, there's a lot of strong cinematography in the movie. I would say the one-line plot summary for opera is, a young opera singer is stalked by a deranged fan bent on killing the people associated with her to claim her for himself. The film was financially successful. It received pretty good reviews. On the review aggregator website Rotten Tomatoes, opera has a rating of 91% based on just 22 reviews. But uh, Ed Gonzalez of Slant Magazine, I don't know him or the magazine, but I like what he said about it. He called it Argento's last full-fledged masterpiece, and he praised its operatic attention to death and the way in which the film's killer forces Betty's gaze. He called that genius. And of course, we're talking about needles taped under the eyelids, which I do believe is an absolutely iconic visual and still very, very hard to watch. To me, this movie feels like Dario Argento had been making these kinds of movies for so long, nearly 20 years at that point, that he wasn't going to settle for same old, same old with any kind of choices. So again and again, the movie narratively and visually subverts your expectations. Normal scenes, stalking scenes, kill scenes, any kind of scene just don't end up playing the way that you would think they should or would. It refuses to be formulaic or derivative, even if some of the bold choices the film ends up making are questionable. But I like that about the movie, and even when it swings and misses, it's memorable. At the end of the day, opera is a wildly ambitious, somewhat pretentious digression from the typical slasher playbook that certainly carves out its own niche in the pantheon. Vic, you can talk about either of these films. Take it away. Do I have to? Uh, well, we have a <laughs> no. show to do. <laughs> no? No, you don't have to, Vic. <laughs> you can just vote. <laughs> My thought on opera is that it needed more close-ups of ravens. <laughs> <laughs> I wish we got more reflections on the eyeballs of ravens. It, yeah, really drill in on the raven eyes as it, as it goes. Look... I mean, here's the deal with opera, right? Like, I am not 
a fan of giallos and I'm not a fan of Italian horror in general. Now, John, I know that's deeply offensive to you and, and I'm sorry. I know that one of the first times we hung out, we watched Manhattan Baby. When I watch these Italian horror films, it feels like a signed reading in, in school, like in college. Like I, I have to read Jude the Obscure and I have to watch Deep Red. And so I've done my homework and I, and I sort of know the drill, but the lack of focus on narrative and like characters being motivated to do things or like audio quality, these things just sort of fly out the window. But I will say that with opera, it is one of the films where Argento specifically his style, but also Giallo, Giallo sort of generally, everything kind of meshes. It's an operatic style. And so to have the opera setting, the opera house they film in is gorgeous. The operatic camera movements sort of fit with everything. Like it is big theatrical filmmaking, uh, big theatrical murders. There was a lot of so – so there was a sense in which this is kind of the perfect melding of style and substance – if I was going to like a film like this, it would be opera. And I and I liked it. It's fine. It's good. It's gory. I hated, and I can't stress this enough, during the actual murders, they cut to some sort of heavy metal, and I hated it. Like, I get weird. what they were going for, but... It's very weird. There were scenes where they were running away, too, and they were cutting to heavy metal. It was the it was just the worst juxtaposition with because again the opera is what works the operatic music is what works it was one of those moments where you kind of went ah Daria what are you what are you doing how do you how do you not see why this is a bad idea but it was so uh, yeah that's kind of my take on on opera just just by virtue of how it was conceived it's kind of behind the eight ball with me but for that type of film and that type of filmmaking. I liked it better than I thought I would. There's a particular sequence uh, with a, a detective who's supposed to come up, and you don't know who he, whether it's him or not. And it's it's a well done, very suspenseful, if uh, sort of self consciously filmed sequence. But I, I did enjoy that. With Maniac, I mean, Rich, like you kind of nailed it on the head. The POV stuff just doesn't work, and I didn't know that going into it. So I really went into it going, you know what, I'm excited to see is Elijah Wood play a fucking weirdo. Like, I want to see him go full fucking post-Lord of the Rings weirdo. Then I realized very quickly that I was just not going to see them very much. And when you do see it, I was like, oh, yeah. Like, he's he's actually giving kind of a credible performance, and he makes the vulnerability of the character uh, sort of work. I, I wonder how much longer I can stand movies with killers who have mommy issues. I feel like that's going to be a running theme that's, that's just going to become mind-numbingly Yeah, dull. I agree with you on that. Yeah. R- Rich, what did you uh, think of opera? Sorry to cut you off, Vic, but time, okay. timing. You know, I have probably even a more upsetting admission than Vic does about Italian horror, which is that I'm pretty sure this is the first Argento film I've ever seen. Wow. Um, I've watched very little Italian horror. I know that at some point I had a very similar reaction to Vic. I saw some like in college and I knew people who were really into it. But my immediate reaction was like, this is not my field. Like I am not, 
I do not want to go to an Argento or a Lucio Fulci triple feature and go see this stuff over and over again. And so I just kind of got away from it. So it, it was interesting going in and like I, I guess I carried some of the pretense of that with me. And like I'm not sure how representative this is of his of his other work. But I did find the filmmaking to be very like forceful and uh, intense and aggressive in a way that I enjoyed. Um, I actually weirdly liked all the cutaways of the Ravens. I thought that the scene where they released the the Ravens like in the opera was like one of those great things that sort of had me laughing when when it initially happens, and then. I was kind of like caught up in like the, the, the drama is like the crews are going to like find the killer. It was so like preposterous and yet fit <laughs> in with the fit in with the, the style of like the storytelling and the, and, and the, the, the logic of it all. It is one of those movies where it's like I made a bunch of notes as I was watching it and I'm reading them back. And I just have I have no idea what I was talking about at the time, but I feel like that is actually sort of reflective of the film. I, the, the the needles on the eyes like kind of bothered me because while I feel like the image itself is iconic, like every time he did it to her, I was just like, I'm just like, I don't buy it. I don't buy it as being this thing that like forces you to keep your eyes open. I don't buy it in terms of like him, like being able to like force her to do it. I don't even think like the tape would stick that well um, or for that long. Like, there's just something about it that was too precious um, for me. But I agree that just on like a conceptual level, it's it's a uh, it's effective. I also know that the use of heavy metal was was weird. There's a good there's a shot where someone gets shot through the uh, the eye hole of a door that I felt was one of if not the coolest gun related kill. At least you know like a, a full on fledged like someone getting shot, which isn't something you're seeing a lot. In um in the films that we've been watching, but it was a very uh, like effective and and sort of like, surprising way to like present someone being like shot in the face. The finale is absurd, and like the flashbacks that she has is are absurd. I don't know. I wouldn't say I loved it. Um, I liked it, and I appreciate it for its. I didn't identify them as operatic qualities, but I, I guess I can see that now. It's a movie I'd, I'd be interested in going back and watching again. Honestly. Well, how interested? Are you going to vote for it? <laughs> you know, it's a it's a tough call. Like, I'd say I enjoyed Maniac. And again, enjoy is like a loose term. Maniac's a pretty, like, hard film to say that you like. But I did find myself, like, along for the ride. You know, by, like, probably, like, after, like, the, you know, the half, the halfway mark. I was like, I was interested in seeing like how the story resolved itself, and we haven't even touched on like the like the whole like mannequin thing with Frank, which I isn't exactly an inspired idea, but I did kind of like and like you know I won't get into like details, but I like I liked the climax with the mannequins, even though it didn't really make any sense. I just liked the way in which the mannequins had their own life inside his mind that you got a little bit of insight to, but not a lot. Like there was a whole like domestic drama happening with Elijah Wood's characters and the mannequins. And you kind of got glimpses into it, but there were like jealousy issues. There's just like a whole like world happening in his head with them. And so I, I like that element of it, but I don't know. Ultimately, like in terms of movies that I think that there is more to discuss, I'd probably have to go with opera. Mm, interesting. Well, I mean, I think I'm asking you to cast your vote. 
I, I'm looking at Vic's eyes, trying to with which way do I go, Vic? Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna go opera. Okay, okay. Well, I have a lot to say about Maniac, and I think that as you touched on, like I think there's a really intimate portrait of a warped psychological space that we get from Maniac that is very intimate and overwhelming. I'm not a psychologist. I can't tell you how authentic it is, but it certainly immerses you in this guy's reality. And I think the POV contributes to that. And I, I personally find it more interesting than opera, which is more style over substance. But I, I like opera a lot, and I like going into the world of Dario Argento. So, Vic, I think you're going to need to break the tie here because I am, I am voting for Maniac. John, I'm sorry. Did you say you're not a psychologist? <laughs> well, I play one on TV, but uh, no, my PhD is actually in women's studies. <laughs> Well played, I, sir. Yeah, I, I, I do think going into Vic's vote, it uh, this mid, I think this is a first where the champion of each film has decided to vote for the other film. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. <laughs> I mean, champion we use loosely here because yeah, we sort of somewhat arbitrarily, but not always, uh, decide who's going to you know give the speech for each movie. And I hadn't seen, I'd only seen Maniac once when we decided this. And I watched Maniac this week and I was quite taken with it a little more than I felt with opera when I saw it a few months ago. I'm not going to be angry either way. Um, I'm just kind of interested. Vic, give us a little of your thought process and maybe we'll push you, we'll steer you, not push you. Uh, we'll gently steer you one way or the other, but or or are you completely decisive at this point? Well, John, if it's not going to piss you off either way, that that really takes a lot of my motivation. I know. Out I'm sorry. So, I will say something we hadn't. Rich mentioned a bit about the the mannequins and the imagery and stuff. Something that I found really effective in that movie are there are moments when. Frank finds his body parts replaced with mannequin parts. Yeah. There's a scene when he's washing his hands and then he looks down and he's got mannequin hands. Uh, there's a, there's a, a more extreme version of that than I won't detail for the, for the listeners, but that was stuff that I thought was really cool. It sort of hinted at, I think the potential of that film and of doing that kind of film from the, the first person point of point of view that I feel like just gets waylaid by the the stuff with his mother, which just feels so trite and kind of familiar. But again, at this point, you're you're 40 years on from Psycho. It's like, come on, 50, 50 years on from Psycho. And then you've got an original film to be beholden to. My note there, Vic, was not sure about the promiscuous mother backstory, both a cliche and a little psychologically hard to figure because she's nice to him the first time and then mean the second he catches her with these Johns or whoever it's, it doesn't really work. He might be a bit of an unreliable narrator too. Yeah. You know, like I, I guess I kind of took it that way that it's like, I don't know that his memories are exactly meant to be taken as history. 
I mean, it's certainly possible, but it just it's there's it, not even any direct connection, right? Like it's just like, oh, your mother was a prostitute. Now you're a serial killer. In a movie that I I think I would praise again for its psychological immediacy and how it thrusts us into his consciousness, it just felt like a really trite backstory to give the guy. Yeah, agreed, a hundred percent. That said, I my my issue with opera, and I feel this way in, in general when it comes to those kinds of thrillers, is I hate movies that are approached as sort of a whodunit. But don't give you, the audience, the clues to figure it out. Right. So you're literally just waiting for the killer to announce him or herself because there's no other evidence, uh, sort of evident. Like like everyone has a couple of things they've done that look suspicious or weird or make them look guilty. And so how are you supposed to know? Literally just it's like a screenwriter throws a stone at a character and goes, yep, that's the killer. And so that part of it sort of bothers me as well. But all things being equal, I would say that opera feels like a slightly richer uh, experience than Maniac. There's not much. It's not like I can tell you what from column A and what from column B sways me that way, except that I like the opera. I like the setting and the, the, the camera work was sort of dynamic and the idea of watching a whole POV movie. Uh, I've seen Lady in the Lake. It's not that good. The idea of watching another POV movie like that is is just so self-conscious. As as much as I get what they were going for, it's not effective. And I I wouldn't make a movie that way. I think that that's just probably a mistake. It feels like they they sort of flunked the test before they got started, which is too bad because, again, I think Elijah Wood gives an interesting performance. I think that the some of the characters uh, are are and the dynamics are interesting. Could be interesting. Some of the imagery with the mannequins and stuff, but I don't know. I'm I'm gonna go opera, but it's I don't feel strongly about it. So if anybody wants to to make a passionate case for maniac, I will uh, I'll leave myself open to it. I will admit I was kind of hoping you were gonna vote maniac. <laughs> you know, I definitely even, was. Even even though I voted for opera. <laughs> What the fuck? You guys are you guys, you guys don't make any goddamn sense. Uh, honestly, I was really kind of upset hearing you say it because, like, the two of the movies that I wasn't that familiar with that I most wanted to dig into again and really talk about with you guys that I think are rich and meaty and yielding of interesting conversational topics would be Midnight Me Train and Maniac 2012. (laughs) And last episode, uh, Midnight Me Train bit the dust, and now Maniac 2012 is on, on the verge of it. All right, let me just throw a couple random things at you, Vic. This is an extraordinarily resourceful killer, the way he gains entry to people's apartment buildings, ballet studios, you name it. But he's got this heavy-duty mental illness that tortures him. There's crippling migraines and skull-splitting whining drones in his skull. And there's nothing glamorous about this guy. But at the same time, he's extremely good at what he does, which makes 
him certainly kind of a dynamic antagonist, or uh, he's not an antagonist, he's a uh, anti-hero. And I love the downtown LA that we we get in this movie. It feels like the spiritual cousin of the original Maniac's gritty late 70s New York vibe. I know it was probably shot in 79 or 80, but you know it has that dark days of decrepit Rome that was New York in the in the 70s. And yes, this is in LA where women navigate deserted streets and subways in the middle of the night alone and on foot with startling regularity. That's that's a little implausible, but it's still a very interesting landscape to navigate as as a viewer. And there's a lot of really rough stuff in this movie in terms of the the bona fides of slasher films. The scalpings are rough especially the older woman. The music is very good. Uh, as, as Rich said, there's a really kind of self-aware moment where the woman describes the Frank from the original movie as what she expected this Frank to look like when they have an online date. I, there's little clever touches like that on the script level. Anna is very interesting, and Anna's dynamic with him, and is she flirting with him the whole time or not? I think she is. This is this is more of a feast than a appetizer. I think that my problem with opera is that I think it is, to paraphrase Vic, kind of an, an inch deep, as he said in a la- in our last show. I just kind of I think it's more style over substance, and I don't know how profitable our drilling into that movie is really going to be. So I don't know if that sways you or not, but. And I'm I'm fine because I I was charmed by opera and I would certainly would not mind looking at its hyper stylized versions of kills and its quirky choices. I would not mind looking at it again, but I just kind of feel like Maniac is more truly tapping into the femoral artery of slasher films. Rich, what's your uh, position? Do you want to switch your vote? I don't know. Can, can I even? I feel like once like the next person is voted, like your vote is cast. Like it would be cheating for me to change my vote. I think it's I think on, all you, the Vic. on you, Vic. Yeah, it's on you, Vic. <laughs> I think you're the only one who has a, who has the option to change. I mean, it's it's our show, guys. We can make up the rules. <laughs> of course. But I mean, I do think it would be kind of unfair for Rich to suddenly like take it out of Vic's hands and say, no, I'm changing my vote, right? I mean, I don't know. I'm, 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 I'm kind of with you. Yeah. He did say he was disappointed that I voted for opera. Yeah, so well, he's convincing I, you. I mean, I think we're both telling you to change your vote, essentially. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, more or less. You don't like Italian horror <laughs> movies, Vic. <laughs> no, I'm fine with it. Is, I'm fine with it. The thing is, this really what this really has to do with is my relationship with my father, and like trying to get his approval, and the fact that I can't get you guys on the same page about what you want me to do is making me want to go murder my family. That's the recurring theme of your time in Texas, Vic. I'm gonna let me just text Emily right now. If there is an axe, please hide it. Yeah. Do not let Vic near the axe. <laughs> Vic referenced uh, an axe several times on our podcast. Uh. John, you sold me. I'm switching. Yay! Let's, let's, let's do Maniac. All Let's right. do it. Yay, we have a win. Outstanding. <laughs>
Wow. Which I said, uh, your 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 position is just flummoxing to me. But fine, all right. Uh, you know, you know, I'll I'll give you a brief, a very very brief explanation. I feel like I always miss the boat on the Italian horror thing, and so I was interested in delving more into that and being able to discuss that. But at the end of the day, just like college, like there's part of me that kind of doesn't care. With Maniac, it's like I feel like I have awesome. I feel like I seen that film before just in different packaging i'd say i enjoyed watching maniac more than i enjoyed watching opera but i felt like maybe there was something more to see in opera so i'm happy either way uh but i'm happy we're doing maniac well and you're gonna get another bite at the italian horror apple because we're gonna do deep red uh at some point later in this competition so yes we will I, i feel like stage fright like borderline counts as well oh yeah absolutely I prefer stage fright between these two movies. So I think we're getting our, our prescription for Italian slashers. Not that I don't like opera, but um, again, a tough choice, a tough choice. So this is going to be a really tough choice, ending our show tonight. These are both movies that we have recorded multiple hours of podcasts about. They have never gone head-to-head on this show or any previous incarnation of the show. I don't know how this is going to go at all, but we're closing the show with Friday the 13th, Part 4, the final chapter, the five seed in the Peak Franchise category, going up against Halloween 4, the return of Michael Myers, which ends up at the 12 seed. So... Definitely the deck is stacked against Halloween 4 here. I realize I don't know if I mentioned the seeding on on the one that we just did, but Maniac 2012 was an 8 seed going up against Opera, which was a 9 seed. So if I didn't mention that, now you know that was a tough call. Very tight. They were equally matched. Okay, let's introduce the final chapter. I will do the honors on this one. And of course, the Peak franchise is core slasher movies. These are the the names that everyone knows, the heavy hitters. Each of these films could probably wreak havoc in another bracket, but they don't have that luxury. They're going to go up against each other, and we're going to determine which is the best of the bunch. A lot of people think the final chapter is the best of the bunch. This was directed by Joseph Zito and released in 1984. The logline is, after being announced dead and taken to a morgue, Jason Voorhees spontaneously revives. There's something a little cynical in this logline. He escapes from the hospital and stalks a group of friends renting a house in the countryside near Crystal Lake. I think that pretty much sums it up. The film was apparently not released internationally, it seems, but it opened number one at the North American box office and grossed about $33 million on a $2.6 million budget. That's nearly a 13x profit. Huh, how appropriate, 13x. Anyway, it was panned upon its initial release. Siskel and Ebert both eviscerated it. And its numbers on the review aggregator website still aren't very impressive. However, I think in the sweep of history over the course of time, this movie's legend has grown. And it is now generally seen as one of the best Friday the 13th movies, and it's many people's all-time favorite. I do look forward to revisiting that question again myself in the course of our extraordinarily rigorous process of analysis. Unless, of course, there's an upset 
this round. Who knows? But my favorite things about this movie are the cast. I keep saying that lately. But anyway, the most of the F-13 movies don't have memorable performances from Corey Feldman and Crispin Glover in them. I guess it's not uh, Bradley Cooper, Leslie Bibb. Or the twins. I love the twins. I don't know their names, but they're great. The kills in this movie are great. They're first rate. The build to the most climactic and satisfying ending of any installment in the Friday the 13th franchise, I would wager, even if it is somewhat weakened by the knowledge this was not the final chapter by any means. But no doubt about it, Friday the 13th Part 4 is one of the most compelling slasher movies ever made. They caught lightning in a bottle with this one as it captures the pure, primal, modern, long-before-postmodern essence of slasher movies. It does all of that at a very high level. Even Part 6, just two movies later, feels more meta in its way, and I think it does that brilliantly. But this movie represents the vibrant wellspring of what made slashers worth deconstructing in the first place. All right, let's talk about the film it's up against. Vic, tell us about Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers. you damn right I'm going to talk about Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers. So, released in 1988, directed by Dwight Little, who has since become a prolific TV director, but... A little nugget for our listeners, John and I met working for renowned film producer Arnold Copelson at Copelson Entertainment, who did such films as Seven, Tune, Seven, and uh, yeah. Outbreak. Outbreak, yeah. One of the not good movies he produced was called Murder at 1600, which was also directed by Dwight Little. So anytime there's a Copelson connection on this podcast, we always feel it necessary to point that out. So John, we've got a Copelson connection between Halloween 4 and Murder at 1600. I was produced for a $5 million budget. It grossed $17.8 million, which is 3x. Uh, not entirely successful, but still pretty good. The log line is that 10 years after his original massacre, the invalid Michael Myers awakens on Halloween Eve and returns to Haddonfield to kill his seven-year-old niece, unless Dr. Loomis can stop him. Reading this logline, it, it occurred to me that, that Halloween, really more than any other franchise, is is weirdly calendar-specific. In uh, a subgenre that's all about dates, right? Like Friday the 13th and April Fool's Day and shit. Somehow, this one in particular keeps coming back. Halloween 4, after 10 years. H2O, after 20 years. The Gabe Gordon Green one happens after 40 years. They, they're just counting off decades. It would have been 30 years, except Rob Zombie elected to reboot the franchise instead of connecting it to the original. So this one introduces Michael in maybe his worst mask. It's really dreadful. Um, <laughs> Not to mention the shoulder pads. The shoulder pads, yeah. But it also uses a, a less is more approach to the the sex and the violence. It's pretty violent, but more of the kills sort of happen off screen than you expect. And while Kathleen Kinmonth, who uh, you may recall, I gave my my hottest girl uh, machete award in uh, no Sheffy, sorry the Sheffy award. She provides plenty of of sex appeal, 
but it's awfully chaste compared to its Friday the 13th counterpart. Instead, I think much of the film's benefit, it actually spends some time developing its characters and relationships. I feel like a broken record, but these are the things that impress me when we get to this, especially the relationship between Rachel and her adopted sister, Jamie. This is really what makes it the backbone of the movie. It's as Rachel learns to, to love and, and protect Jamie, but is there a stronger bond than Jamie's blood connection to her uncle, Michael Myers? Uh, the film ultimately lands on a very pessimistic answer. I'm not going to spoil it, but I just want to be clear. This is a very dark film with very dark things to say about the questions that it raises. And you have to respect that, even if they would immediately undermine it in the very next film. Uh, I think the performances are solid, especially Danielle Harris and, of course, Donald Pleasance. And while the thematic content is, is on the nose, uh, it's really like George Bernard Shaw compared to uh, the final chapter. So <laughs> Nice. Well, Rich, how do you think these two movies stack up? First of all, I want to say the twins are Tina and Terry, and yes. they were played by Camilla and Carrie Moore, for the record. It's been a little longer for me than you guys since I've revisited the entire Friday franchise. But I do, generally speaking, feel like this movie is, if not the best of the franchise, then it's in the the top two. Whereas I don't feel the same way about where Halloween 4 fits into the the Halloween series. Although I will say, like, it's not that far off. Um, I agree that this is one of the stronger Halloween entries. It's hard to get past... Like, I have a lot of passion for Halloween 1, but beyond that, to me, Friday the 13th is the essence of what we talk about when we're talking about slasher films. Um, It's a mixture of dumbness and creativity. It's like baseness and energy. It just sort of captures the epitome of like the 80s spirit of the of the slasher. Like nothing is more iconic to me about slashers and in many ways about horror than Friday the 13th is. Whereas Halloween, I view as one masterful film and then several interesting films and several more or less interesting films that, that followed. And so for me, it it is hard to side with, with Halloween in this, in this scenario. I agree with, with Vic that it's certainly a much more engaging story from a character point of view in Halloween. But I'd also argue that again, in terms of slasher films, like I kind of find Michael's kills in, in Halloween four to be sort of dull. I feel like Daniel Harris is carrying um, Halloween four, but I also feel like Michael is sort of like plotting his way through a very high body count with a lot of like off screen kills. Like his journey in this movie is not that interesting. Daniel Harris is, is um, along with her, her sister and her, and her family. Um, whereas I'd say that with Friday the 13th, like you've got Tom Savini back and you are, you're looking at a lot of interesting kills. And on top of that, I enjoy Corey Feldman's character with, with his masks. Like, he like him and Crispin Glover do bring a little bit of, I guess what you would call like character acting, like flair to this that, that makes it appealing. I also just like, like the, the effects in general, like of the, the kills are really great. And the way that they, they, that they deal with Jason at the end of it is actually sort of like unique in the series. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's a tough call because these are both like really like the boiled down essence of like the middle of the, 
of these like two franchises. But for me, like Friday is like a stronger entry and something that I'd, I'd rather watch. But they're both great movies. Yeah, I came to like Halloween four a lot more when we did two and a half to four hours on it for our podcast. I'm not sure. I think I know it was a long two parter, but I, I definitely became a lot more fond of the film. But I think I will always kind of come down to if we're putting these things head to head that I think that Halloween four is kind of more of a TV movie and Friday the 13th part four is a movie movie and it's just from the way it looks, the way it's shot, the vibe, the atmosphere, the editing, the the mood of these raining dark nights and the, the, the building of the suspense. It just plays its fingers up and down my spine in a way that I just never get from the return of Michael Myers. Though I do agree that it has a better plot and stronger characters and stronger acting overall. And there's Donald Pleasance for God's sake and some good scenes there. And I think Daniel Harris is great in the film and there's a lot to like about it, but the, the basic slasher elements of tension and shock value and the dark edgy quality of anything can happen and real gore and stuff like that. I think that Friday the 13th has it, it completely kicks its ass in this competition. So if you really want more about these movies, uh, delve into our previous episodes, tweet me and I'll tell you exactly what number they are. If you have trouble finding them, but uh, they're both movies that we love talking about, but I, I think we seated these correctly, gentlemen, and uh, as much as we could keep talking about Halloween 4, I, I think that you should just listen to the podcast and let's let's wait, walk wait. away. Nope. What? Before you do that, I'm going to ask you both one question. These movies end in very similar fashion, essentially with close-ups of yes. their, their children characters, they right? Do. Now, neither of them pay off this ending in the next film, but they both <laughs> take this very similar journey with the, with, the, with the characters. And at the end of the film, when you're looking at those characters, which one of those characters, which one of those, those transitions feels more believable, more motivated, more of a function of the film that's preceded it? I, I think that's a leading question, Vic. You're leading the witness. Yeah, with facts, John. I'm leading you with facts. But by all means. You're, you're not wrong, but obviously he means Halloween is better in that regard. Go ahead, Rich. No, I, I agree with him that it is better in that regard. I imagine, especially like if you take into account the time period that these that these films were released, I can't help but thinking, which of these movies would you rather sit in a theater and watch with a bunch of people um, and eating popcorn? Like that is what that is what these movies were literally designed to do was to put people in theater seats um, and watch with a crowd on a Friday night. While what you're saying may be accurate, it's by like Halloween four is by no means Shakespeare. And, you know, it is like edging out by a margin Um the the character and like dramatic plot possibilities of a like mid period franchise film like this. So now like, it's, if you yeah. just want to boil it down to like what this movie's like intention was, like these movies' intention was to be like an entertaining watch of the but with with like a group group of people. And I'll ask you that same moment in which theater do you think the energy would be higher 
and more enjoyable. Rich, Halloween 4 is George Bernard Shaw, not Shakespeare. Okay, it's his Desire Under the Elms. All right. <laughs> Sorry. Answer the question, Beck. <laughs> <laughs> I, this, is what, this is what I'm going to say, all right, is that Friday the 13th final chapter, your entire A story, all the characters <laughs> you've invested in, are dead in the second plot point. And that's not Spoiler! Like a, a Hitchcock. It's not like a it's second plot point, John. I'm allowed to talk about the second plot point. That's not a Hitchcockian uh, retooling of, of film structure. What's the bigger uh, uh, crowd pleaser, Vic? My dick. John, my dick is the biggest crowd pleaser. He's, you're so uh, belligerent, Vic. You're so belligerent. Look, I'm casting my vote for Halloween 4 because it's a better movie. I don't know what other – I don't know. You guys have these other – these are the metrics about popcorn in movie theaters and shit that I don't understand. (laughs) Halloween 4 is a better movie, so I'm going to cast my vote for that. I want to build on something that Rich said, which is you know, when you're equating the level of writing in these two things (laughs) – I'm going to kind of tie it back to, uh, we talked a lot last episode about Jessica Biel. It's like, they're both episodes of Seventh Heaven, and one of them is a really well-written episode of Seventh Heaven, (laughs) and the other is, eh, you know, kind of a mediocre episode of Seventh Heaven. What are we even talking about here? (laughs) Neither are George Bernard Shaw, sir. (laughs) (laughs) so i'm gonna vote for other attributes and i am 100 percent going for the final chapter as am i that's delightful that you voted for other attributes than quality that's that's good (laughs) it's a different kind of quality Beck. It's one that matters. The twins are the kind of quality that you need <laughs> the to twins, the, the twins consider. are what matters here. Hey, Kathleen Kinmont's twins are all I need <laughs> to qualify for uh, Fair enough. For slasher film. Fair enough. All right. Well, uh, this has been uh, truly a delightful pod, epic night of recording. And I want to tell everyone what they can expect next time we are in your ear holes. We will pit... Oh boy. Halloween. Yes, the original, not part four, the 1977, 78, 78 classic against Maniac Cop. And then we also have my. (laughs) (laughs) Did you like my read on Maniac Cop? Yeah. Anyways, uh, we also have My Bloody Valentine 3D versus Wes Craven's New Nightmare and Psycho 2 going up against the Funhouse. Until then, we hope you don't become the obsession of any deranged individuals or stay in dubious roadside motels because both things can be very hazardous to one's health. For now, adios. Adios.